scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Read about a demon man possessed that was healed. Then they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Who had his dwelling among the tombs, no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with chains, with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and his shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Despite what you Marvel comic fans might think, this is not a text about the Incredible Hulk. We will, uh, we will explain that a little bit more as this uh, lesson progresses, but in the meantime, I'm delighted to see all of you here this morning and to know that so many of you are uh, joining us online in our worship this morning, and we're grateful for your presence as well. And uh, as Ray has already mentioned, we've got almost 70 couples uh, down in Eufaula with the uh, marriage retreat, and so we miss them. But uh, that's one of the reasons why there's a lot more social distancing going on this morning in the auditorium than usual. But uh, again, delighted that you're here and delighted that you uh, came here in order to be able to worship God. It's a beautiful Sunday morning, isn't it? I mean, I've, I've noticed a pattern. It doesn't matter if it's raining or if the sun's shining. It's a beautiful Sunday morning. This is the Lord's day. And I hope that we deeply appreciate that and can use it in a way that will honor our God. A number of years ago, there was a commercial that came out by Bell Telephone that uh, had a little jingle that was involved. By the way, uh, I don't remember exactly how many years it was. I, I, I tried to research it and couldn't find out exactly when this commercial came out. But I'll guarantee you, if I describe the telephones that we used back then, probably about half of you, it would not mean anything at all to you. Rotary rules. Anyway, uh, but I, I can still vividly recall the commercial itself, and the jingle went something like this, reach out, reach out, and touch someone you love. And it usually, the commercial was usually someone, you know, calling a dear friend or maybe a family member and uh, talking to them on the phone. Maybe they're reconnecting after having not talked for a period of time. But, but I, as I think about that old commercial, I, I think the concept is not really new at all that people have been reaching out and touching folks they love for a long, long time. And as we're going to see in a moment, that really is the sum and substance of the gospel accounts. Jesus spending his, his three-year ministry reaching out and touching people that he was concerned about, that he had compassion for. And, and so I want us to develop that theme a little bit this morning. And I want us to get hold of a very deep fundamental concept that I think it's, it's easy for the church to lose if we're not careful. And, and I think you and I have certainly been touched by someone who loves us, and that's the reason why we gathered around the table this morning. But, but also, I, I would like for us to kind of refresh ourselves with a restatement of purpose and direction about exactly how that we do that, especially in light of, of the banners or the placards that we have on the wall. And our theme for this year is, is each one win one in 21, and, and I hope that we become more soul conscious this year. That's one of the things that we're going to be working on. 
and that we will recognize that we have some ability somewhere. Each of us has some, something that we can do that will help to lead someone to Christ in 2021. So uh, keep all of those thoughts in your, in your mind as, as we study together this morning. But I want to begin with what we've already mentioned. And that is very simply that Jesus spent his life reaching out to people. And oftentimes, and I think that you will see this as a pattern as well, that many of the people that Jesus reached out and touched were the social pariahs of his day. There were people that no one else would dare touch. Just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the 10 lepers and how that it was amazing how that Jesus would interact with them at all because uh, society would not do that. And they were sequestered oftentimes in colonies and, and all the rest. But it ought to be clear, I think that a body of people like us who are known as the Church of Christ ought to be trying to follow Christ in every aspect of our lives. Do I need to even say that? We need to be reminded, though, I think, of that fact. If we are the church that belongs to Christ, then it ought to be our daily ambition and goal and aspiration to do everything that we can, as, as closely as we can, to the way that Christ himself would have done it. So among the many things that that means is that if we're a people who are, are trying to follow Jesus' example, then that means that we need to be willing to do that individually and corporately as, as, as a church, as a body of people. So we understand that Christianity is first and foremost learning how to live like Jesus. I want to take one just small fragment of that concept this morning and to develop that for the next few minutes. Because as you look at Jesus, one of the most powerful things I think that you will see in his life and in his example is that he was always reaching out to someone he loved. And if you examine the gospel accounts, you'll see that he, I mean, he was always doing that. Let me give you a few examples. And you're not going to have time to turn to each of these passages, but most of you are familiar enough with Scripture to remember these as I run through them. And because he, he begins by reaching out to those in Nazareth where he lived. He, he started right where he lived. And then he reaches out to the 12 men who will, who will live with him and be by his side for the next three years. We know of them as his ambassadors, as his apostles. And then he, he'll touch them and their lives will never be the same again. Because of the touch of the master's hand. I mean, those 12 men who started out as blue-collar workers, and many of them were fishermen and, and, and carpenters and whatnot, Jesus touched these men, and I believe it's safe to say that each of them were transformed by, by that touch. And, and, and he'll reach out to the ten lepers that we just mentioned who came to him for healing. And you remember how that one of them came back to praise Jesus as the Son of God and to express his sincere gratitude to Jesus for what he had done for him, while the other nine apparently neglected doing that. One man, one man who had been touched by Jesus appreciated that touch to the degree that he was willing to come back, maybe go to some effort to come back and to tell Jesus, thank you. For what you have done for me today. Or maybe it's over in John chapter 4. And it's the woman by the well in Samaria. And here Jesus is interacting with her over a dipper of cold water. And, and he reaches out and he truly impacts this, this woman's life. And the Bible also tells us there in the text in John chapter 4. That, that, Jesus, that, that she at, at Jesus' instruction had, has gone back to Samaria. And, uh, and tells the people, hey, the, the, the man that I just met at Jacob's well must be the son of God. He must be the Messiah. 
And one of the reasons that she gives is because he knew everything there was to know about me. I mean, here's somebody I just met, but he knew everything about me. This man must be who he claims to be. Or maybe in Mark 10, it's the rich young ruler who who will never be quite the same because Jesus took the time and demonstrated the compassion to reach out and touch this man's life. Or then there's Zacchaeus that we are introduced to when he's up in a tree. And he again will never be quite the same because Jesus goes home and eats with him and and demonstrates to him in in a very tangible way that you are of value and that you are important to me. His life has been changed by the hand of the master. Or maybe there's the Roman soldiers. I absolutely love this. I go back and reread it sometimes just to be astounded again about the Roman soldiers. You remember when they were, they were sent to arrest Jesus? They came back, and those who had ordered the command to go arrest Jesus basically by implication said, so where is he? And their response was, never a man so spake. They were so overwhelmed by what Jesus had to say and by how he said it that they forgot what they went there for, and they came back without arresting Jesus. Note, again, these were men who had been touched by the hand of the master. And even on the cross, the Bible says, in the final moments of living, Jesus touches people by saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Or how he reached out and he touched his mother as he instructs his apostle John to to care for her. And he delivers her over to his care. He also reaches out to the thief on the cross beside him by saying, today you will be with me in paradise. Everything I see about Jesus and his life, he's reaching out and he's touching people that he loves. And, And there's one detailed outstanding example of Christ's concern that can be found in our text that Don, Don just read. We're going to go back and look at some of these verses this morning. So if you've turned away from Mark 5, I hope you'll turn back there and look specifically at the five verses that Don read a moment ago. Mark is telling us, I'm not going to go back and reread it, but, but Mark is telling us some very important things and some principles that I think that we can, we can draw out of this passage and apply to our lives today. And, and you may be thinking... What in the world in this story could apply to our modern world? Here's a man living in a graveyard. Here's a man running around naked. You know, uh, here's a man possessed of an evil spirit. In fact, more than one. Uh, What is there that would apply to our situation? Hang on and and you'll see in just a moment. So first, I, I think that Mark's account is telling us that this man obviously was disoriented. That's the first thing I see about the, the man who, who's living in the cemetery. He was, again, living in a graveyard, and people, I remind you, normally do not live in graveyards. That's where they're buried. You need to write that down somewhere. You know, somebody were to say, Randy, where do you live? And I said, Greenwood. Greenwood Lane, Greenwood Road, no, Greenwood Cemetery. They would think I was weird. And they would be right. Because you don't live in a cemetery. That's where you're buried. But the Bible says he spent his days and his nights living in a graveyard and crying out and screaming and and clearly disoriented from reality. I think it's safe and accurate to say that that he was not himself. 
In fact, that's an expression sometimes we hear in the English language, at least, that this person was beside themselves. And I, I think that would be an apt description of this man. He didn't know his identity, and he was not able to live a normal life because of the specific circumstances that he was experiencing. So his life needed touching, and he was completely out of touch with reality until Jesus enters the picture. Second, this man is a man who needs some direction. He was not only disoriented, but as a result of that, he needed direction in his life. And, and think about the immediate application spiritually of that. Aren't there millions, billions of people who are occupying this, this planet today who need direction? They know that they're here, but they don't really know why they're here. They may not even know where they came from, and they may certainly not know where they're going. They need direction, just like this man did. He lived in the tombs. No one was strong enough to bind him. The Bible says, and I love the specificity of the passage, it says not even with chains were they able to bind this man. And he had often been chained hand and foot in an attempt to restrain him. The Bible says he tore apart the chains, and he tore the irons off of his feet. So here's a man who was, his life was completely out of control and he needed direction and he certainly needed restraint. And, and they had tried that, but it hadn't worked. Here's a third thing I see about this man in this text. And that is, here's a man who needed to be touched because he was trying to destroy himself. Notice what the text says that uh, at least a part of the list of things that this man was doing. It says that night and day, and I'm reading now, at night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Clearly self-destructive behavior. Here is someone who did not even have the mental faculties, the awareness to be able to, uh, to deal with himself in a way that was constructive in nature. So apparently for him life had gotten to the point where it just wasn't worth living. A lot of people in our world who are just like that. More people in America kill themselves than kill each other. The suicide rate is quite a bit higher right now than the homicide rate. People get to the point where this man was. Life just isn't worth living. I'd rather die than to keep on living the way I'm living. What those people need also is compassion and direction. So here's a man who was by himself and he was clearly alienated and lonely and depressed and he certainly needed someone to reach out and touch him. Now, here's something very important that I hope that we appreciate as we walk through this text together this morning. This encounter with Jesus begins when Jesus touches this man right where he is. Please notice that. He, he, he touches the man right where he is. Listen to the word. When he saw Jesus from a distance, talking about the man himself, of course, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now, please appreciate, he recognized Jesus. He recognized his deity. And then he says, Swear to God that you won't torture me. Now, if you've ever read that passage and thought, That's weird. Because when have you ever read anywhere about Jesus torturing someone? And yet, that's the first thing out of this man's mouth. Please don't torture me. Jesus doesn't torture people. He touches them. He doesn't hurt people. He helps them. 
He doesn't beat them. He weeps with them and for them because he's that kind of compassionate person. And yet here's a man who's so completely out of whack, so completely possessed of evil, that the first thing that he cries out is, don't torture me. Because the Bible says, and here's the explanation for that. Jesus was saying to him, come out of you, come out of this man, rather, you evil spirit. So we now identified what his real problem was. This was in the day when people could be possessed of evil spirits. And he was possessed not just of one, but of many, as we're going to find out a little bit later. Now watch this. Jesus took the evil out of that man. And he replaced it with himself. He took a man who had no direction and gave him direction. He he took a man who had no reason for living and gave him the utmost, ultimate reason for living before he left that man's presence that day. He asked the man his name, and there was some discussion. And then as the text goes on, it says Jesus directed the evil spirits into a large herd of pigs. May I note this is the first biblical example of deviled ham, but that's not important. But the, but the Bible said, and that's kind of strange too. I mean, this whole thing is strange. Cast out the evil spirits into a herd of pigs, and then the pigs, I mean, this, this will make a great movie, ran off the cliff and, and drowned themselves in the nearby sea. And, and then the Bible says the people reported everything that they had seen. Well, I would think so. I would think word got around. If, if you had seen that, you know, on some beautiful Sunday morning, wouldn't you, wouldn't you go, I think I'll probably tell people about, about what I just saw. And so it's no surprise to us that word gets around. And the text says, when they came to see Jesus, they saw the man. Here, here's the, the result. The, the uh, aftermath is not the right word. Here, here are the positive, the positive conclusion of this story. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And notice their reaction. And they were afraid. Because they had seen something that they couldn't explain. And, and I think we can all identify that. We can understand maybe a little bit of why. Because we're afraid of that which we do not understand. And then the Bible goes on to say, And, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Don't you think that's also characteristic of our modern world? Jesus is the answer. And yet we don't ha- want to have anything to do with him. Because he's going to call upon us to be accountable for our actions in this life. So, Jesus, please don't live in my house. I, I just assume you go somewhere else. And-, and that was their reaction 2,000 years earlier as well. Now, please notice how Jesus reached out to this man. This, I think, is critical to this study. He, he meets him right where he finds him. We've already mentioned that. And then Jesus doesn't, he doesn't criticize him. He doesn't judge him. He doesn't say, why don't you put some clothes on or make him feel guilty because he was not living a good life and he was not going to synagogue. Jesus didn't do any of those things. Didn't castigate him or criticize him. He met the man right where he was and he dealt with the needs right where he found them. And let me say, he's still doing the same thing today. And then he shared his life with this man, and he gave the man a fresh start in life, which is what every one of us needs. He, he changed his whole life, is what he did. And the man followed Jesus, the Bible says. I'm glad that's included in the text, aren't you? That he wanted to follow Jesus. 
And, and wherever Jesus was, as opposed to the people in the village who said, please leave our region, this man said, wherever you go, that's where I want to be. Because he had been touched by Jesus in a way that no one had ever touched him before and wanted to go with him, and no wonder. And finally, Jesus gave him a new mission. Please don't miss that. He gave him a new mission in life, and it wasn't to sit on a headstone for the rest of his life. He gave him something to do. Here's what the text says. As as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how that he has had mercy on you. And by the way, even without an instruction book, that ought to be our reaction as well. When Jesus has touched our life, when his blood has covered our sin, when he has forgiven us of all of our past transgressions, our first immediate natural reaction ought to be, I want to tell everyone about this Jesus who has touched my life in such a profound and powerful way. Amen? I mean, that's what, that's what it's all about. Uh, Soul winning and sharing the gospel with people is not something that's artificial and awkward. It is the natural outpouring of a grateful heart. And that's what this man did. So he went away and began to tell, the Bible says, in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him. And the Bible says all the people were amazed. Well, I would think so. Now, this is just one of the many exciting incidents in which Jesus reached out and touched people in a very powerful and profound way. He reached out and he turned a life around. A life that clearly was headed for self-destruction, a life lived in the graveyard, a life of, characterized by loneliness and alienation. And instead of putting him down and making him feel guilty and condemning him, Jesus met him right where he was. And he dealt with his needs right where he found them. And he gave that man hope and salvation and mercy. And aren't those things that our world needs right now? And aren't those things that you and I need right now? Aren't you glad Jesus reached out and touched you? Aren't you thankful every day? Don't you have a heart filled with gratitude for what God has done for us that we could never do for ourselves? And so the Bible says that this man returned home and told what Jesus had done for him. Again, a a natural reaction. Told his family, his friends, and then he shared his his good news throughout the ten cities. And people were amazed at what had happened in the life of this man. Now let's take that thought lastly and drop it down into the modern church. Because as we mentioned in the very beginning, it's, it's somewhat of a challenge to take this text and say, what principles are there that we can apply to our circumstances today? Because on the surface, it seems like there's very little that we have in common with this demon-possessed man in the graveyard. But I want to suggest that there are some things that are profound in this text that will help you and me live the Christian life more effectively every day. And most importantly, that will help us and motivate us to want to share the good news of the gospel with people around us. Because this is an example, is, is a perfect incident where Jesus reached out and touched a life and changed and transformed a life. And, and, and is it not true that the church, as we mentioned at the very beginning of this study, that's following Jesus ought to also be reaching out and touching people? Is that not the point of our discipleship? It is to, if we have been one, it is to win others. 
Or as Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, if we have been taught, it is so that we can teach others. You pass along what you have been taught, and so then Christianity becomes multi-generational. We pass it along to our children, to the next generation. We pass it along to the people that we love and are concerned with. And we may even pass it along to someone who is a complete stranger, but that we have developed a friendship with, a relationship with, so that we can now share with them the most important and valuable thing in all of time and eternity, because that's our job description. That's what we ought to be doing. And we ought to be waking up every morning thinking, who is it that I can touch and influence for Christ today? Please give me opportunities to be able to share your saving message with someone. There are at least three reasons, and I'm going to run through these very quickly, and I may not be able, for those of you who are filling out the outline, I may not fill in all of your blanks because I'm going to skip some stuff. But let me mention these quickly. There are three things that are preventing us from doing that in the modern day church. Number one is the, is the hired gun syndrome. And I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings when I say what I'm about to say, but it needs to be said. So I'm going to be candid, but also I'm, I'm going to try to be kind. In, in the old westerns, you probably remember if you've watched any westerns at all, when they wanted to get rid of a crook in a particular town, they would hire a gun. And that was somebody who came from out of town who uh, nobody else in town, you know, was fast enough to be able to outdraw the guy who wore the black hat and not even the sheriff. And so they had to hire somebody from out of town to come in and to do their work for them. Churches can do the same thing if we're not careful. There are churches who exist and whose mentality is if we could just hire the right preacher and if we could just assemble the finest staff, we would grow and we could win this community for Christ. That's the hired gun mentality. And we need to be very careful, folks, because not only will that not work, it will devastate the church. Because it runs antithetical to everything that we as disciples ought to be thinking and doing. Every one of us needs to recognize that we are ministers and missionaries, and it's not just the guy in the pulpit. That every one of us has not only a responsibility, but a tremendous privilege to be able to reach out and touch someone we love with the power of the gospel message. And so that's one danger And I think that's one hindrance. A second reason why we maybe not reach out and touch people is we're afraid of what people will think if we try to share our faith with them. And I know that's the case because I've been in enough personal evangelism classes and I've taught enough of them to know that that oftentimes is the number one. What will people think if I actually mentioned, you know, my religion and and Jesus Christ to them? We're afraid that we don't know enough Bible. We're afraid that we won't say the right things or be able to answer their questions correctly in order to win them to Christ. And so all we can think of is is failure, failure, failure. And what will they think of me if I do this? I I think it's easy for for us to be afraid of what people will think if we share our our faith and our lives with others and we become transparent and we tell them what Jesus has meant in our lives. So sometimes fear can paralyze us. And then thirdly and very quickly, we, we sometimes don't reach out because of just sheer physical fatigue. Almost every Christian that I know of who's not retired and some who are work hard, long hours at their jobs. And sometimes physical fatigue could just make us insensitive to the needs of others, can't it? I mean, you're thinking at the end of a long day of work, if I could just get home and hold down my chair, you know, until this time tomorrow. Uh, And and so sometimes we're just tired. And and that's when we need to be rejuvenated by the power 
of God and his word to do what we can in order to reach out and touch people with, with a message. So how do we do that? Let me mention just a few quick ways that we can do that, I think, in a very practical and a very tangible way in our day and time. Uh, because when we look at Jesus as, as, as our example, and that's what we've been doing this morning, and the power of, of reaching out and touch, touching someone as he did here in Mark chapter 5, there, there are certain things that become very clear, and that is, number one, we, like Christ, need to begin with our own family and friends. And you might be thinking, ooh, nepotism. No, that's not what this is. This is the natural progression of things. Let me give you the Bible for that. Luke chapter 24, verse 47, the beginning. And repentance and remissions of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? That's where you live. So start in Jerusalem. And then the text goes on to say, and then go to Judea. That's the country in which Jerusalem exists. So now you spread out to the entire country and then Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what the Bible says. That's the natural progression. The light that shines the farthest is the light that shines the brightest at home. So folks, we need to be interested in world evangelism. But first, we need to be interested in Montgomery evangelism. We need to be interested in arrowhead evangelism and town lake evangelism or wherever you live in or outside the, the city limits of Montgomery. We need to be interested in reaching out and touching the people with the power of the gospel who live right around us, maybe even across the street from us. So we began with our family and friends. And, and, and God has done that all through the generations. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, for example, he told Moses, now you need to instruct Guess what? Your families in the law and the will of God. I mean, there are seven principles in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I preached on it, but uh, that are powerful. And, and, and all of those work today, by the way, when God said, now you pass your faith down to the next generation so that your sons and your son's sons will be dedicated, faithful followers of God. And that's the way that works. Secondly, we just like Christ need to, to develop the skill of listening. You might not have put that on your list as we're talking about ways to effectively reach out and touch people. But folks, let me tell you, one of the powerful ways that Jesus did that was by listening to people. And I don't mean just allowing the sound waves to bounce off his eardrums. I'm talking about Jesus had the tremendous discipline. I don't think it was something that he was just born with. I think you have to develop this, the power and the discipline of really listening when people are talking to you. Communication takes place. This is Communication 101 if you want to get credit for it. Uh, there has to be an, an encoder and a decoder. There has to be someone who gives a message, someone who has received the message, and, and, and the same is true in our spiritual communication. It takes place only when people are really willing to listen to each other. So often, even in conversations, in private conversations and dialogues, we're so busy thinking about what I'm going to say next. Are, are you that way? I struggle with that. So busy thinking about what I'm going to say next that I don't really cue in to what it is that you're saying right now. And so that's one of the things we've got to overcome if we really want to reach out effectively and touch people for Christ. But, but listening is a very difficult thing to do, and I'm, I'm just going on record as admitting that. Our past perceptions are the windows through which we see things and people. And it would have been so easy for Jesus, along with the rest of society, to have categorized and pigeonholed people and say, well, everybody knows about the Samaritans. 
Because they did. The Samaritans were considered dogs. Maybe even less than dogs. We love our dogs, but Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people. But Jesus never did that. What he did do, we've already recounted in this lesson in John chapter 4. He talked to a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And he transformed her life by that one conversation. And part of that effectiveness was because he was willing to listen to that woman and what was going on in her life. Folks, if you get nothing out of this lesson this morning except that, I'd be satisfied with just that. Learn, we all need to learn how to really listen to people. Cue in to what's going on in their hearts and lives. Here's a third thing we need to do. Just like Christ, we need to look for the open moment. Because Jesus was constantly attuned to the particular combination of events in the lives of people. And, and, and sometimes there are just circumstances that will line up that will make people more receptive to the gospel message. That makes sense too, doesn't it? Not just spiritually, but psychologically. There are things that take place in a person's life that will make them more apt to listen to the message of salvation. Flabel Yakely Jr. in his book, Why Churches Grow, published in 1980, has a whole chapter on that about things that transpire in a person's life that will make them more receptive to the gospel. And you know, and let me just give you a couple examples of that. A death in the family will oftentimes do that. It, it will cause people who've never given a second thought to spiritual matters began to think seriously, hey, you know, mama died. I'm going to die someday. Or this person that I love died. My husband, my wife has passed away. And it causes them to think seriously, maybe for the first time in their lives about their standing before God. Sometimes a birth in the family will do that. Here's this precious little child that I am now responsible for. Maybe my wife and I need to think seriously about giving it spiritual direction. But in order to do that, I've got to line myself up with the word and the will of God. So a birth in the, in the family will do that. Sometimes just moving. When one, and, and that may seem strange, but just moving from one location to another. Once a person has made that kind of change, they are more apt to be willing to make other changes. I'm just saying Jesus was so attuned to people that he saw, figuratively speaking, when the planets aligned and that when they would be most receptive to his word and to his influence. And, and we need to be looking for those same, the same types of, of circumstances and situations. Fourthly, we, like Jesus, must reject religious manipulation. We need to reject religious manipulation. Jesus never confused manipulation for evangelism. It is not our business, our calling. It is not our right to manipulate people when we're trying to convert them to the Lord. Let me give you one quick example of that. It is my humble judgment that still the most effective way to win people to Christ is through friendship evangelism. It is almost impossible to convert a complete stranger to Christ. But if I have developed a relationship and a friendship with that person, it is much easier. Once we've gone fishing together or hunting together or whatever it is that we have as a mutual interest, and I've developed a friendship with this person, they've developed a friendship with me, it's going to be a lot easier to sit around the kitchen table and talk about the most important thing in all of time and eternity. But let me tell you this. What if that person doesn't obey the gospel? You drop him. No, 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 no. That's manipulation. You tell that person, whether you obey the gospel or not, after we get through this study or this conversation, you will still be my friend. We will always be friends. 
You see, that's the opposite of religious manipulation. Jesus did not manipulate people, and we need to be very careful that we don't do that either. Finally, we, like Christ, must stay committed to people. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what changes, no matter how socially distanced we have to be from other people, I mean, social distancing, I think I mentioned this some months ago when we first got into this pandemic thing, social distancing really is a misnomer, isn't it? It's physical distancing. And so we have to make sure that we're not socially distancing, that we're still social people and that we're committed to people. So regardless of what, and, and, and this is so powerful, folks, and it's why I'm ending with it. Regardless of what people did to Jesus, he would never turn away from his basic commitment to them. He still loved them. He was still concerned about their lives in the here, but more importantly, he was concerned about their lives in the hereafter. And they could spit on him, and they could curse him, and they could scourge him, and they could drive nails into his body, but he always stayed committed to people, and he always sought what was best for them. And his promise to the apostles, I think, is an ever-true promise to, to all of us who follow him today. And that's when he said in Matthew 28, verse 20, And lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. That is, if you go and do what I told you to do, and that's to make disciples. So when growing Christians, we need to realize that God begins with a sinner, and then you've got a baby Christian, and then hopefully, ultimately, and eventually, there will be a full-grown, fully mature Christian. Now, the problem is we need to understand that people will not always be where we think they ought to be in their spiritual growth. So we need to be very careful about that. We need to remember that God is growing a person, and that takes time. So as we reach out to people, we need to remain committed to them, and we need to promise to them, even if we have to do it out loud, that we will never leave them regardless of the problems and the difficulties in their lives or in our own lives. What if every person who was won to Christ was told, now that you have been baptized into Christ and you have put him on in baptism, you can never make another mistake? You know the answer to that as well as I do. There would be no hope for any of us. And thankfully, we don't have to tell people that because it's not true. Jesus' blood will continue to cover our sins as we walk in the light, 1 John 1 and verse 7. So here's the crux of the matter. Someone has said that uh, real soul winning, reaching out and touch people, as we've been talking about this morning, is just one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. That's right, isn't it? Except in this case, it's the bread of life. So don't quit reaching out and touching people for Christ. In fact, I hope and pray that 2021 will be the year when we collectively, corporately as a body of people, began to be more and more interested in reaching out and touching people with the power of the message of God. And don't let, get a hired gun to do it for you. Reach out and touch someone you love starting today. Maybe that you need to become a child of God in your initial obedience to turn your back on sin and repentance, confess Jesus as the Son of God, to be able to say confidently before this audience of people, I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and then allow us to baptize you into Christ where his blood will cover all of your sins, and you'll walk out of this place with your life transformed while we stand and while we sing. Are you washed in the blood of the Lord?